In your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9. A very, very familiar passage of Scripture. Some of you know it by heart. Some of you have read it so much you feel like you know it. You know, in the past messages and recent messages, I've been seeking to or attempting to challenge all of us to consider how experiencing real Christianity, and I emphasize real, synonymous to being biblical Christianity versus the cultural Christianity that's permeated our society today. But experiencing real Christianity begins with responding to what I've called the biblical gospel. And you may recall in the previous message, I expounded upon the elements that make up the biblical gospel versus that which is being promoted by modern evangelism today in so many crusades and in, in many church houses. That easy believism that causes people to think that all you got to do is have some past experience and there you're on your way. It doesn't matter how you live your life, your commitments and your priorities. That's, that's immaterial, which is absolutely unbiblical. It's not false. That's not the biblical gospel. And you recall, we ended on that message focused on the whole idea of commitment. Because without commitment, you have not heard the whole gospel. And without making a commitment, you haven't taken that step to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, we, we talked about in the, in, the, in the previous message about how this, this authentic Christian life is, is substantiated, if you will, by a daily examination of our lives. Every day we need to have the courage to take the Word of God under the direction of the Spirit of God and like a spiritual x-ray, hold our hearts and our minds and our lives up before the Lord. And examine yourself, Paul says, to see if indeed you are in the faith. And so that's important. And when we do all of this, here in the biblical gospel, substantiating our life in Christ through fruitful examination will result in what I'm calling today in the, in the title of the message is what real Christianity is really all about. And that's authentic discipleship. Authentic discipleship. You see, the word disciple means follower. A follower of someone else seeking to learn from them, seeking to imitate them, and in many cases, seeking to propagate their teachings all around. That's, that's what a follower is. There are many types of disciples out there. Disciples of all types of world religions. Disciples of all kinds of philosophies, if you will. But we're talking about a Christian disciple. Followers of Jesus Christ. We're talking about, when you say a Christian disciple, you're talking about a man or a woman who has committed themselves committed their lives to following and living for and imitating Jesus Christ. And I want us to take a look at these elements of, of authentic discipleship because unfortunately and actually tragically there are a number of people sitting in churches, names on the church roll, maybe serving in a position of leadership, Considering themselves to be a disciple. And when the truth be known one day in judgment, they will hear the Son of God in, in all of His power and glory 
say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because you see, it's that same Jesus Christ who said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Oh, there are a lot of disciples out there. There were a lot of disciples even in Jesus' earthly ministry, but they weren't all true disciples, and we'll see that in just a little bit. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, the G Jesus Christ said, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say to do? That's why it's important that we examine ourselves as Paul so admonished. And so based on those passages, only authentic disciples of Jesus Christ actually inherit the kingdom of God. You've heard me say this, and I mean it with all of my heart. There are going to be a whole lot less people in heaven one day than this world thinks is there. Because they don't meet the qualifications of an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ. And dear friend, I don't care what denomination you belong to. I don't care what kind of religious practices you may have. I don't care what your spiritual pedigree may consist of. If you don't meet the qualifications... As an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ, those faithful and condemning words may fall on your lip one day. I pray not. I pray that you live daily with the assurance that you know that you will be in heaven with the Lord when you leave this world. And so it's important that we preach these kinds of messages. It's important that we expound upon what the Bible is saying so that we as followers make sure we get it right. We don't earn our salvation. It's nothing we could ever do that would cause the God to open up the gates of heaven to us because of our own merit. Oh no, please don't hear me to be saying that. Because discipleship is what we do once we have made that commitment. And so today, according to the Lord, authentic discipleship is based on three commitments that I want to focus on today. And I encourage you, I urge you, Hold your life up against that. These commitments. Be bold enough to ask yourself, is this reflective of me? For instance, the first one, you as a disciple will willfully engage in self-denial. In Luke 9, verse 23, the primary text that we'll look at, then he said to them, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself. Well, I'll tell you what, that phrase right there will cause the hair to bristle on the back of a lot of contemporary people, even contemporary church people today. That's a hurdle that quickly weeds out superficial believers. You see, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, The natural man, the lost man, the unregenerate man, receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for to him they're foolishness. I guarantee you, you take one of your secular, unregenerate friends out there who's caught up in the world, and you mention to him that you give at least 10% of your income to support the church and, the, and, and, and kingdom causes, and they'll look at you like a mule looking out a new gate. You, you do what? Are you crazy? 10%? Because you see, Paul says, it's foolishness to them. Nor can you argue them to see it, dear friends, so don't even bother. Because Paul goes on in that same verse and says, Neither do they know it.
because it is spiritually discerned. They'll never know it unless the Holy Spirit opens up their blinded eyes to see it. I didn't know it until God opened up my eyes, and I dare say, nor do you. So this hurdle quickly weeds out superficial believers, those who are natural, spiritually speaking. Oh, it'll weed them out because self-denial goes against the grain. Such comprehensive self-denial is not only radical, ladies and gentlemen, to this world in which we live, and it has been for centuries, but to many it is repulsive. Holding your place there. Go over to John's Gospel, chapter 9, or chapter 6, I'm sorry. And, and John's Gospel, chapter 6, and my goodness, I wish, I wish I could read verse 44 through verse 71, but I won't. But I encourage you to take time to read the context. But Jesus has been working miracles. He's fed the 5,000. The people like that. They like that welfare kind of Christianity where, hey, just feed me. Take care of my needs. Make it easy for me. But then Jesus begins to, to get down to the nitty gritty of what it means to be truly a part of the kingdom of God. And he even describes himself as bread. And he says, unless you consume me, my body is flesh and my blood is drink. He says, unless you drink my blood and consume my body. In other words, he says, you've got to ingest me. No, he wasn't talking about cannibalism. Relax. Or physically digesting his physical body? No. But he was saying that you need a spiritual diet of one course, me. And unless I abide in you, you see, when you eat food, it comes a part of you. And Jesus is in essence using this symbolism to say, you've got to not only follow me, you've not only got to identify with me, you've not only got to say, I like this Jesus, because he's a, he works great miracles and he feeds us, and we just want to hang out with him. He said, don't cut it. I've got to be in you. And I thought it was interesting in chapter 6, in verse 6, uh, John chapter 6, verse 61, says, when Jesus knew in himself... That, these, that, that his disciples murmured about this. He said to them, does this offend you? Of course it did. Of course it did. Look at verse 66 and verse 6. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Did it say just the crowd? You, did you notice that it called them disciples? Many of that multitude that were so enamored with him who were following him when he put the requirements out there and described the commitments that go with being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, of being a true citizen of the kingdom of God, many of them took off. And you see, we see that today at the heart of the so-called seeker-friendly movement in which the church tragically has decided that somehow we need to attempt to make Christianity and the Christian faith more palatable and less offensive and less restrictive and less demanding upon the secular citizens around us. we got to dumb down Christianity and stop with all these requirements and, and commitments so that people will like to come to our church. We need to make it more entertaining and not so much in the Word. And because of that, you see, people flock. 
But the minute you begin preaching the word of God as it is in its context with the obligations that come with following Christ, people just like they did back in Jesus' day, scatter. They scatter. Because it's a hard saying. It's a, it's a tough commitment to deny yourself. Wow. The unsaved resist a life void of self-interest and self-fulfillment and self-indulgence. Oh my goodness, have we ever witnessed a time where people were more selfish? We live in a selfish, selfish society. A humanistic, materialistic, hedonistic, self-centered culture bent on self-satisfaction. You notice how many times I said self? And Jesus said what? If you want to be a genuine follower of mine, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you've got to first of all deny yourself. Boom, right out of the gate, that thinned out a big portion of the crowd. Because who wants to deny themselves? And the same thing today. When you start talking to people about denying themselves, oh listen, that's a hard pill to swallow. And that's a lot of times where people will part ways and say, well, I appreciate it, but I'd rather go on over here where we can sing some of them 7-Eleven songs and the preacher gives that little pep rally kind of a message that makes me feel good and I leave. Yeah, I, I, no, don't be talking to me about that tough stuff. True believers understand the necessity to die to self. As we understand the word of God, we understand the first step. You've got to be willing to die to yourself. That doesn't mean commit suicide, but it means to be able to put Christ before you do yourself. And put the kingdom of God. Real Christians readily embrace self-rejection. As opposed to the reaction of the sinful crowd out there. Because we know that our sinful flesh nature, our fallen self, is hopelessly cursed and has been from the beginning. It rebels against the Spirit of God. This body that we live in, and, and is so subject to, the, the, to the, the, the wounds and the temptations of the flesh, and it's so susceptible to the, the temptations of the world, and certainly vulnerable to the devil. Listen, is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul there in Romans 8 verse 24 cried out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the, this body of death? Oh, we've got to deny ourselves. Paul articulated it beautifully over in Philippians in chapter 3. I know you're familiar with this, but in chapter 3 of Philippians in, chapter, in verse 7, Paul said, and Paul had every reason to be in love with himself. I mean, the guy was, he was smart as a tack. He was educated more than you can believe in Judaism. I mean, my goodness, he had the favor of the Pharisees and the, Sad, uh, the Sanhedrin. Uh, I mean, he was, he was it. He had every reason to be in love with himself until he met Christ. Until the Lord Jesus Christ invaded his life. And suddenly Paul realized, i got to change. There's got to be a radical change in me. Listen to what Paul said in verse 7 of Philippians 3. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. But indeed I also counted all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul says name it. My degrees, my prominence, my power, my wealth, name it. My Jewish heritage, name it. It's all trash. It means nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ. And, and living for him. Jesus described 
in that wonderful Sermon on the Mount, that beautiful opening in chapter 5 of Matthew, Matthew 5, what we call the Beatitudes. Jesus, Jesus nailed the mindset of a true disciple. A person who has denied or is able to deny, to deny themselves. Listen to how Jesus... I love these few verses beginning in verse 3 in chapter 5 on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He made it very clear. It's not by our self, selfish pride or our self-righteousness. It's not by our self-glorifying works and accomplishments and abilities that we enter into the kingdom of God. You don't go out there and get to be educated and get rich and get powerful and get prominent. And then God say, you know, I think I can use you. In fact, if that's what you're banking on and that's your resume and that's all you got in your resume, he won't even look at you. We empty ourselves of all that come with the package of being lost. We empty ourselves of all of that and we come before Christ morally broken, spiritually bankrupt, and humbly dependent upon God. And when he gets us to that point, we have denied ourselves and anything about us that might get in the way of us wholeheartedly committing ourselves to Christ. When we're at that point, then God sees a person he can use. In fact, you don't even enter in through the narrow gate until you have committed to self-denial. But it doesn't stop there. The second commitment is you daily undergo personal sacrifice. They kind of go hand in hand because Jesus says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. Paul understood this whole idea of daily undergoing personal sacrifice. My goodness, there's not a better example in the scriptures of, of a person other than the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered so much, sacrificed so much for the cause of the gospel. Paul understood this idea because you see in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Paul knew what the cross meant. I am crucified with Christ, he says. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, he says, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. Paul says, I'm nothing. This life I live is only because Jesus is in me. Because I've died. In 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Paul says, I die daily. <whistles> what about you? Some of us don't even die monthly for Christ. Some of us don't even die annually for Christ. Some live as if we're doing God a favor by showing up at church. Paul says, I die daily. Take up your cross, he says. Follow me. Our society has transformed the cross into a harmless trinket of silver or gold. And even the church, 
And speaking of the cross, we bought into this false concept that, that your cross is any uncomfortable or unfortunate circumstance that you may be enduring. You can call it your cross. I lost my job. That's my cross I got to bear. I've got this chronic illness, you know. That, that, that's my cross I got to bear. Oh, my mother-in-law is my cross that I bear. And I thought it was funny because Dr. Adrian Rogers was talking about that one time. And he says, your mother-in-law may be cross, but she's not your cross. <laughs> so mother-in-laws, you're off the hook. No, 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 no. The Christian cross. Listen carefully. The Christian cross. The cross of which Christ is speaking. The Christian cross is that suffering that the disciple encounters directly as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? You can't claim it as your cross unless that suffering has come to you and come by you because you have chosen to stand as a believer of Jesus Christ. We talked about and prayed for the persecuted saints across the world today. They understand. They get it. The only reason they're being arrested and their property is being sold and their children are being taken and sold into slavery and their wives into the sex slave or they're being executed. The only reason that they're suffering like that is because they named the name of Jesus. It's a man who loses his job because he stands on his Christian convictions and unyieldingly says, if the company wants to be corrupt and crooked, that's fine, but I'm not going that way. It's a teenager that doesn't get invited to the parties. It's the people that have their friends suddenly lose their cell phone number or unfriend them on Facebook once they find out they're serious about representing Christ. Accepting whatever cross you, your faith in Christ requires that's what Jesus is talking about. And to the original listeners, the cross meant sacrifice. Hey, listen, you, you, there was no mistake. Not any disillusion or, or, or misunderstanding by the people that Jesus was talking to. When he, talked, when he mentioned the word cross, there wasn't visions in their minds of this cute little gold emblem on a lapel or hanging from their neck. Oh, no. It would be like you and me mentioning the word electric chair, gas chamber, a lethal injection. Oh, it got their attention because when Jesus said that, they said, what, whoa, you're talking about suffering now. You're talking about sacrifice now. And let me tell you something. The church biblical record in church history is replete with true life incidences and stories of Christians who have suffered for their faith in the Bible and down through the centuries in the history of the church men and women who have knowingly will, willingly sacrificed everything for the cause of Christ let me tell you something they are the ones taking up their cross Vice President Mike Pence in the recent conference to show support for persecuted Christians across the nation that took place in Washington, D.C., said that according to recent estimates, as many as 214 million men and women across this globe suffer some form of oppression, if not outright persecution, simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, that humbles me. 
It almost makes me ashamed that I would dare to complain that I have to go and do something for the Lord. Oh my goodness, what am I going to say when I stand in glory next to a person who lost everything, including their lives, because they would not recount their faith? What am I going to say when I'm standing there in the presence of the Lord, but also in the presence of that dozen Christian men who were marched out on the beach in Libya by the ISIS soldiers and demanded that they recount their faith in Jesus or renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. And when they refused, they were beheaded on television. What am I going to say about the minor inconveniences that I have to encounter because I choose to follow Christ. True disciples may find the cross becomes the ultimate sacrifice. Not just a matter of losing your job. Not just a matter of losing your home. I don't mean to be a prophet of doom and gloom, but ladies and gentlemen, on the slippery slope that our nation is headed on right now, it would not have shocked me at all in a generation or two from now. Christians may be herded up. Arrested. Who knows? Maybe some of the preachers executed. Because you see, they're considered to be enemies of the state. So you see, taking up your cross can mean sacrificing convenience, sacrificing possessions, sacrificing people, but it could also mean sacrificing your life. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. I think about Jim Elliott, one of my heroes in the faith. Back in the 1950s, he and I think four other missionary friends of his dared to go into the deep jungles of, of South Africa to minister to an absolutely barbaric tribe of Indians there. Headhunters, if you will. They killed every single one of them, slaughtered by that treacherous tribe they sought to share the gospel with. Jim Elliott wrote in his journal just prior to that, it's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I said, oh Lord, that's the kind of, that's the kind of disciple I want to be. That's the understanding I want to have of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, we daily undergo personal sacrifice, accepting whatever cross our faith in Christ requires, but also enduring whatever painful consequences serving Him brings. Committed followers will willingly suffer the, for the glory of God. We, we don't mind suffering for the glory of God. If it brings glory to the Lord and it, it advances the kingdom of God, those are true disciples. That's the mindset of a, a, a true believer. I shared this with the companions this week out of this little devotion book by Dr. John MacArthur called Remember and Return. He talked about two such followers of Christ back in the 16th century. It says in May 1555, Bishop Hugh Latimer, soon to be burned at the stake for his anti-papal reform convictions, wrote, Die once, we must. How and where, we know not. Here is not our home. Let us therefore accordingly consider things, having always before our eyes that heavenly Jerusalem and the way thereto in persecution. Later that year, both Latimer and his friend Ridley were fed to the flames, but not until Latimer astoundingly 
astonishingly composed, said to his colleague, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. True disciples understand that following Christ is not always convenient. It's not always comfortable. It's not always pleasure oriented. It's not about popularity. True disciples of Jesus Christ understand that there are consequences that come with that. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 he elaborated on that. He touched on that. Listen to what he says. And this is, we touched on it as we preached through that. In 1 Peter chapter 12, uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Peter says, count it a glorious thing that you can suffer. I think about when Jesus, as he called upon the disciples in the third commitment, he said, follow me. Simple as that. We not only deny ourselves, but the third, and, and we're not only are willing to endure personal sacrifice of our cross, but the third commitment in, in biblical discipleship, authentic discipleship, is we continually commit to follow the Lord's lead. I won't go back and read it, but in Matthew chapter 4, I'm sure that you remember that as Jesus was making his way early in his ministry, he went down by the Sea of Galilee and he saw two fishermen, Peter and and, and, and uh, Simon Peter and, and Andrew, his brother, they were fishermen. And Jesus simply said, but this was the second encounter that Christ had had with these two men. So it wasn't like it was a brand new thing, but Jesus laid the question or, or put the challenge before him. He says, follow me. And it says immediately they dropped their nets and they followed him. They made that commitment. This was a life-changing commitment. They followed him. They went on down the, 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 the seashore and there was another fishing crew, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were fishing and Jesus said to them, follow me. They dropped their nets. In fact, in Luke's gospel, it says they forsook all and followed him. You know, the scripture tells us in, in the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. When Jesus says, follow me, He's not saying, I'll take you where you want to go. Okay? He's not saying, I'll make sure that you experience what you want to experience. Oh no. We set our sights on the Lord, ultimately, realizing that when we follow Christ, there may be suffering, may be ultimate sacrifice involved, but there is eternal rewards go with it too. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Philippians in chapter 3 when he says, Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, reaching to the things that are ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the disciple. That's the disciple. Following Christ wherever He leads us. Following Christ Doing whatever He commands us to do. Keeping our eyes on Him. 
reaching ahead to the opportunities to be faithful to him, abandoning those things of the past and pressing on towards a goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, have mercy. Can we get our eyes back on the goal? Can we get our eyes back on the Savior? Follow him as we were singing in that beautiful hymn that I love. Wherever he leads, I'll go. How many countless times have I sung that in churches and you know and in invitations and, and you know and, and it feels so good. But did I really mean it? Did I really mean it? What if the Lord said to me, Charlie, I want you to pack up and somehow I'm going to get you into the remote areas of North Korea and I'm going to do some church planning through you. Shoot. I said, Lord, let's look at that map again. <laughs> Wherever you lead me, whatever you want me to do, obediently facing the challenges that come our way. And it's interesting as I close in Luke's Gospel chapter 9, look at verse 24 and 25. I call it the paradoxical nature of true discipleship. And it is truly a paradox. Because right on the heels of that, in verse 24 and 25, Jesus says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Huh. You know what's interesting? The most common phrase, most repeated phrase in the Gospels is follow me. The second most repeated phrase in the Gospels is just what we read there. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You think Jesus is trying to get a point across? You can save your life, brother or sister. You, you can save your life, your conveniences and your possessions and your popularity and all the things that make nice, life nice for you. Yeah. But is it worth it? Is it worth it? He says in verse 25, well, what advantage is it to a man if he gains the whole world? Think about it. The whole world. There's some parts of the world that I probably would like to leave out. <clears throat> North of the Mason-Dixon, but anyway. If I could inherit the whole world. And I lose my soul. I think about all the billionaires sitting in hell, burning, agonizing, suffering, tormented. By the world standards, they had it all. You don't even have to be a billionaire. Just a person who's very worldly, materialistic, and that's all they clamor for. And boy, oh boy, they got what they were clamoring for. And Jesus said, what good is it when you lose your soul for eternity? Jesus taught a parable, and, and honestly, I'm closing. Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. It's a very brief parable, and you know it. But it's worth tying into the paradox. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus says again, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then right on the heels of that, he teaches a parable of the pearl of great price. Verse 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he found the one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you understand? Do you see the parallel there? Sold all that they had. They recognized that this one treasure, this one pearl, 
was worth giving up everything for. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's the paradox of discipleship. Is that when we realize the absolute, eternal, glorious value of being a disciple of Jesus Christ and the rewards and the, the glory that awaits us. Listen, there's nothing, there's no one in this world that we won't turn our backs on to stay true to Christ. If any man come after me, let him deny himself or herself. Take up the cross daily and follow me. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ, dear friend? I trust that you are. If not, I trust that God will lead you to be that.